Welcome everyone to episode 10 of the Community Cloudcast. I'm joined by my fellow host, Paul McCollum. Uh, our other host, Jason Himmelstein, will be joining us a little bit later if he can. Uh, and we're also joined by our special guest of this month, Drew Minkin. Drew, welcome to the podcast, webcast, whatever we call much. this thing. Cloudcast, I thought. And we settled Cloud on that a long time ago. <laughs> it's a something. It's a something. What the logo says. Yeah. <laughs> If so, there's one thing I'm uh, good at, it's reading. <laughs> from, from the sides? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Decorating, uh, it is well, a skill. Well people say you well should improvise and, uh, you know, not just read your slides, but I find it an art to just read my slides. To just read the slides. Well, it's a niche <laughs> anyway. Uh, so we are a week late uh, this month. That is my fault. Uh, I had to go out of town for a funeral uh, last week, uh, so we had to reschedule. But uh, Drew was gracious enough to join us uh, this week and facilitate a change in the schedule. So we thank him for that. But normally we would be on our regular third Thursday um, schedule at noon. Of course, you can always go and hit up our YouTube channel uh, for the replay. Uh, on the uh, broadcast, leave us comments and whatnot over there as well, um, if you like, uh, and we'd be happy to uh, respond to you if and when we can. Uh, if you do have comments for our special guests, leave them there. We will forward them along and get you answers as soon as possible. So speaking of our special guest, uh, Drew, how about a quick introduction of yourself? Uh, well, um, I'm an Aries, um, and uh, sorry, just kidding. Um, you like long yeah, so... walks in the park? and. <laughs> Right. Well, you know, um, my, um, my my throat may sound a little bit uh, hoarse from uh, teaching uh, many weeks in a row. And also I have uh, developed a, um, a, a talent in, um, in overtone singing, uh, the hume, if you've heard of um, Soraya and some of the other, I think it was used in um, the Dune um, uh, Sardaukar um, thing there. But, um, you know, I... Um, I have a slide that goes into a lot of detail about me, but in my current incarnation, I work in the vet tech program where it's like an extra um, GI bill where um, I take students that have uh, had never been in the IT professions and in 10 weeks, um, I make them, uh, you know, on a good day, uh, data analysts and on a great day, data scientists. So wow, uh, it's pretty rewarding stuff. Yeah. Wow, That's and impressive. that is primarily for—is that current serving or former? Um, it depends. Um, I had a pretty good idea that things were going to go down in January because I had a student that said that he was not—he had to pull from his resume uh, because he was going to be a consultant on strikers with a Y. If you know what those are, yeah, um, they're somewhere between Bradleys and Tanks. Um, so. Um, you know, I had a feeling there was going to be something going down in Ukraine. Anyway, wow. So, um, you know, it's um, it's pretty exciting. You know, it's it's so it, it's a it's a blend. A lot of them are, are retired, um, you know, a lot of PTSD, a lot of TBI, actually. Um, so it's but um, it's, um, you know, when I was in startups, I there were there were great successes for the company that helped nobody. And so it's nice to know that every day I'm seeing um, something that, you know, and impact generational wealth. So it's, it's been very rewarding work. Wow, that's fantastic. That's awesome. And that is Divergence Academy? That's right. That's right. Divergence Academy, yeah. It's based out of uh, out of Addison. Uh, we're just starting up um, in-person uh, instruction again for the first time post-COVID. So um, yeah, around Beltline and Midway. So uh, would that be a divergenceacademy.com? Is that the web address? Uh, yeah, divergence.one is usually the... the um, the, the link, but uh, you'll see it on the slides. Cool. Awesome. Very good. That's cool stuff. All right. So uh, we're only going to do a, a quick bit of intro. Drew has quite a bit of information to share with us, and I'm excited to hear all about it. So just a quick thank you to our sponsors, of course, Aptogen, uh, upcoming events uh, in a tech that does not include a Share Cloud Summit. Um, uh, and I have the wrong link on there. I will fix that in the show notes. Uh, but that is coming up in Irving, the Thrive Conference in Slovenia, European Cloud Summit at the end of uh, September. And it's important to point out that that is different than the European Collaboration Summit, which is Microsoft 365 and Teams focused. Uh, cloud Summit is all about cloud, Azure, Google, uh, AWS. So we'll have all the primary cloud vendors there. Um, 
and it's a very diverse uh, set of technologies, covers a lot more ground, as you would imagine, than the Collaboration Summit does. I think, in fact, tickets go up uh, starting next week. So you want to get your tickets, uh, get into those. It's in a beautiful part of Germany, uh, right uh, on the Rhine uh, in Mainz, Germany, just outside of Frankfurt. Uh, beautiful, beautiful little town. Uh, and like I said, right there near um, Frankfurt. Uh, and then collab days in Belgium. There'll be a few more collab days on the schedule coming up a bit later as we get them uh, up and going. Uh, so, Paul, quickly, do you have anything that you would like to share from a news perspective this month? Um, yes. So there there are a handful of Salesforce events going on uh, around. Um, my user group is back in person. Um, I'll share a link to the uh, Salesforce developer user group. Uh, we've got a couple of uh, uh, good speakers lined up uh, for the rest of the month. Um, had a particularly uh, good session last night with a speaker that swore a little bit more than I was used to, but uh, <laughs> it made for uh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's powerful. And I, I have a new a new favorite label for his type of, of coding and it's uh, or it's, it's a problem solving, which is brutal. Um, brutal? It's a new compliment. Uh, it, it's like heavy and brute force. It's attacking the problem uh, with an axe as opposed to with a paintbrush um, okay. or with a sculpting knife. It was he he, he has developed his uh, just destroying problems technique into almost a Zen philosophy. It was Sun Tzu and the art of motorcycle repair, I think would probably be the. <clears throat> um, but anyway, so that was fun. Uh, Texas Dreaming is, is starting up, I think, today, tomorrow. Uh, Trail Blazer DX is going on right now. There have been a lot of announcements in the Salesforce space. Um, some fun growth uh, around uh, their training platform. Um, just some more leaning into the gamification of it. Um, their uh, declarative platform flows, uh, which is kind of a Nintex-ish or Power Automate. Mm -hmm. um, they've got first order participation with Slack, MuleSoft, and Tableau now. Uh, so you can go out your workflows. Hey, I need to assign a case tomorrow. I can go out and pull analytics data to come back and make a decision on, um, you know, who I should assign that to or where it should go next or stuff like that. So those Tableau, MuleSoft and uh, Salesforce or uh, Slack were acquisitions and now they're, they're right-click automatable uh, in Salesforce. So uh, lots of- And if stuff. you'd like to extend those decorative flows with, with uh, almost a hundred utility actions, www.aptogen. Yep. Check out our app exchange listing. Thanks for the segue, bud. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, we had a good session on the CTA Saturday meetup um, with a guy I want you to watch. I actually forwarded him your talk on how to get on app exchange because mm -hmm. uh, that's where they are. They are a uh, um, kind of a middling provider similar to uh, just pulling and moving data around for event management. Um, and uh, they had built a, a Slack module. And so they've got it working for Slack and are trying to figure out how to sell it uh, inside of Salesforce where you can write, uh, yeah, sorry, do a Slack, you know, the console commands and say, give me the data about this person or search for anything about uh, these people from this and have it bring it back into a Slack conversation or channel, cool. uh, publish and share. So I thought it, yeah, it sounded like there'd be some interesting synergy. Uh, I tried to work on a an acquisition model for you, but um, <laughs> I think I need to handle it, hand it off to you. I'm ready. Tee it up. There's a commission <laughs> in it for you. <laughs> All right. Uh, as I mentioned before, Jason uh, will try and join us a bit later um, in the uh, session if he can. A couple of quick things on uh, Azure News. Uh, uh, Azure Purview now in the typical Microsoft renaming um, cycle has become Microsoft Purview. Uh, <clears throat> for those of you that are using uh, that, I don't know that there are any features that were introduced, but it caught my eye on the list of um, notifications just because we everything has to become go from a product focus to a Microsoft focus once it becomes popular, right? Uh, bring your own IP. 
uh, has gone GA. This is big for a lot of people that are moving on-prem environments. We see this a lot in the SharePoint space uh, where you have pre-IP stuff and you need to do a complete farm stamp up in the cloud. And now you can bring your own IP um, there with custom extensions, which is pretty cool. Uh, one that caught my eye was the Synopsys uh, cloud, which is electronic design automation for silicon. So using the uh, power of cloud capabilities to actually design silicon chips. Um, all done in the cloud. It's pretty nifty stuff, lot, sort of like AutoCAD in the cloud, uh, kind of. I know people who do this stuff are going to hate me for saying that. I know it's more complex than that. But um, And then the final one that that's, uh, I put on here because it drives me crazy is Azure Front Door, uh, which is, uh, they, they call it a new Azure Front Door. Uh, I would like if they could just get it working properly. Uh, it's now offered in two standard and, and tier standard and premium. Uh, supposedly there's an enhanced rules engine. It's the rules engine that drives me nuts. So hopefully they're fixing that and making it better because it ain't great. Um, and there's not a lot of flexibility uh, on the front end for uh, uh, routing rules and whatnot. So hopefully that's being improved. I haven't played with it yet. I just saw the announcement. Uh, today. Uh, enhanced analytics, anything that can improve this would be better. I'm sick and tired of traipsing through backend logs, trying to find more stuff um, is that I should be able to pluck out a front door um, very easily. Uh, and it's not easy at all, or it hasn't been. So hopefully all of that is getting improved. So if you use Azure front door, uh, I'd love to hear some feedback on if you played with these new um, features I'm about to start playing with it soon myself to see if it has improved. But right now it's the bane of my existence. All right, uh, so without further ado, because there is a lot of data to cover in big data, uh, we'd like to jump in uh, with our special guest, uh, Drew, to uh, cover his uh, area of expertise. Uh, so Drew, I'm gonna flip it to you. Take it away, my friend. Thank you very much. Give me just a moment to share out my screen and we will begin the show. All right. So, um, you know, big data has been around for half a generation um, for most people. But um, I, I would argue that we're kind of entering what I would consider phase three of its existence. And um, I'm going to help you understand why, even if you're not a company that is big enough, where you've got, you know, exabytes and petabytes that have kind of already pushed you to that area where it's very helpful uh, to be able to uh, be, you know, uh, be able to do what I would call big analytics uh, in, in that respect. So um, I'm going to give you a, a basic understanding of, you know, big data as far as the positioning aspect and understand what kind of problems it helps solve that are not necessarily just the scaling issues. Um, and also um, take you through uh, some live interactions after I don't I only have you know a, a dozen slides total but um, I'll you know um, we've got a, a good chunk of demos on uh, some core technologies that will be very uh, useful for anyone who's got data experience be able to understand uh, how the evolution of storage and compute have uh, have really I would argue been revolutionized from you know where things were even you know 10 years ago. So, um, so you know, just some some basic background. I mean, technically, I have been a CTO of a startup. Um, we were uh, we were strong candidates as uh, as being um, uh, you know getting we, we were on the short list. You know, <laughs> whether it's good or not, we were on the same short list as Cambridge Analytica at one point for a very large, um, uh, recently public um, analytics company. Um, and um, also another one um, that is IHS market that's a little bit more um, less nefarious. Um, but you know, I've um, you know, I, I, I'm I, I, I nowadays am, I'm focused on bigger picture stuff and you know having you know the the rule of thumb I would say for anybody interested in entrepreneur work is that make sure you're a founder because there's a big difference between preferred stock and uh, common stock um, when uh, when an exit happens. So. We'll leave that that pain point behind them. So you know, in, in general, you know, the at its fundamental level, big data is about how do we handle an infinite scale. And there's a lot of interesting nuts and bolts about how you know name nodes and data nodes and 
and and how you interact with those layers but you know let, let's just think of it being a magic something that looks like a hard drive but could be you know 1100 servers um as it you know spread across 1100 servers with um you know storage with the sand behind it um as i, I worked with at at&t but the, the main thing to think about beyond just the technical nitty-gritty of it when you know there are workloads that that that, that require it is that uh, data movement is the number one reason not to um to embrace or, or basically i'm sorry Data movement is the main thing to avoid in order to go through big data. The idea is that if you if you're going to do analysis, the old idea of doing ETL, going from one machine to you know from doing network copies and having different scenarios, it, be, it essentially came out of the need for data science being done on very large data sets, where it just became prohibitively uh, logistically too much to be able to to do all that work to be able to um, to get stuff done. And you know nowadays, particularly with you know with with uh, Web 2.0, and it's only going to get worse with Web 3.0, assuming that becomes something you know uh, more than than, than snake oil being peddled um, for the analytics work, right? When you start looking at you know what people consider, some people say unstructured or semi-structured data for text and video and image and things like that, not having to be able to have a different infrastructure for what's being used live. And what's being used to be able to gather insights from that live activity is the biggest bang for your buck. So uh, I would argue that you know there's going to be an upfront hit anytime you look at building a big data infrastructure, but uh, in the long run, um, you want to make sure that you're um, you know that, that, that basically that what, what you're doing by making that investment is making it a lot easier to add incremental layers of value. Uh, along the uh, the way with the uh, the life cycle of the data and your decision making there, and you know the 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 biggest thing that's been a paradigm shift with um, with cloud, uh, you know, with, with sort of second generation uh, Azure, is the um, the idea that compute independent of storage allows you to be able to just choose uh, to use things to, to have compute available uh, when you need it. And so that's uh, particularly in machine learning things where, where you have GPUs that are rented. Uh, it can be extremely expensive to be able to make those um, those capital expenditures. So you know it fits into that sort of opex uh, worth that we'll be looking at there. So um, and again, you know, I, I, I fell into coding from history religions. Um, so I, I always think that it's um, very uh, important to be able to spend some time understanding the 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 you know. The, the history of, of how we got to the world we're going to spend time on. So essentially, the only, out of everything that you see on this slide, the only two things that you will probably hear about for the rest of the, um, you know, your, the, the career these days are going to be HDFS as the actual layer of storage that is, you know, infinitely scalable. You know, I've heard of, um, of, of their, you know, terabytes and exabytes are pretty common, but I've heard petabytes and even yottabytes people have. Um, so um you know and then hive itself is essentially the layer of being able to build uh, a sql query that can go directly against written files and so uh, you know most people talk about velocity variety and volume being the big reasons to be able to bring in um you know to go to big data um, I would argue that one of the, the 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 two things that are much more common, as far as a practical standpoint, to think about, particularly in Hive and HCFS scenarios, is a schema on read concept that we'll see a little bit of today, and also the idea of write once and read many times. They, they basically go because the the idea is that you're trying that 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 writes are the most expensive work that you can do now that you kind of move to one location uh, for your storage there. So I just wanted to kind of give you some. Some background on kind of some of the the um, the first generation. What you know, th this is kind of a good slide for what we consider um, big data 1.0. But the reality was is that um, even though this helped solve the data movement problem, there were a lot of challenges being able to have re-entrant work. Where you know if you had a big job that was running and failed. You usually had to kind of start over again. It was very difficult to be able to have. It was it was kind of slow and clunky, 
And so uh, there are some uh, geniuses uh, at, um, at Berkeley that started to look at a way to be able to take this core um, set of um, APIs and be able to build on it to build sort of the, what I consider you know, the next generation of uh, big data, which is Spark itself. And you know, we could spend a lot of time just going through, you know, I could spend an hour on, on just doing demos of all these different uh, you know, scenarios as far as what, what is Spark. At the, end of, at, at, at the end of the day, there's this thing called an RDD or resilient distributed data set which is the idea is that, you know, in, in HDFS, similar to like a RAID 5 parity, right? You have you, a file may not be stored in just one location in, in its entirety on one node to be able to make sure it's replicated. And Spark basically takes that basic idea and, and abstracts it into memory in that respect. So that RDD structure is that, that sort of parity or partitioned, um, memory structure that essentially allows you to be able to have an infinite scale at the end of the day. So that that's that, that's a layer that, that's the big innovation that all of this other crazy stuff gets built on top of, right? Spark SQL and Hive just to kind of let you know uh, are kind of potato potato the 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 syntax is extremely similar. In fact, it's practically identical uh, with exceptions that happen of course with vendor um, you know, dare I say it, lock-in or, you know, their value-add, reach versus rich, that kind of stuff. Um, we'll see a little bit on Spark streaming, but that's the idea of, you know, having things like IoT hubs, uh, Kafka, Flink, being able to uh, be able to be hitting, you know, a, a, a listener that's across multiple uh, nodes in memory. So uh, one of the beauties of it is that the line between looking at a streaming data set and a tabular data set really barely exists in Spark. And so that makes it extremely um, helpful for what people call a Lambda architecture to be able to have a, a combination of serving from batch historical and live um, uh, real-time data there. Uh, GraphX and MLib, I would consider they're kind of um, the, um, the redheaded stepchilds of um, of Spark in itself, GraphX is a you know a lot of people might use Neo4j, um, you know or um, or uh, you know other uh, you know emerging energies uh, you know uh, systems for for doing uh, graph expression. Um, the the nice thing about the the reason why I like it's not as fast as a lot of other ones, but it makes it really easy to be able to flip between tabular and 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 uh, and node based graphs, which is something that Neo4j doesn't do very well. And um, the, the best thing I can say about ML, Spark ML Lib or, um, or Spark ML, I think is it's, called, it's been renamed recently, is um, that it does scale infinitely, right? But one of the things that people don't like to tell when they're trying to sell you big data is that big data is not always fast data. And, you know, for data sets that you can fit in memory, uh, sklearn and other um, data sets uh, or other APIs are going to be a lot faster for ML. Um, but you know, if your data is that big that it, you have to, you don't have one machine you can put it um, across there. It's going to be easier to think about it along those lines. So, um, you know, Scala and Java are only, only the only native APIs when it comes to getting the best bang for your buck in um, because HDFS and Hadoop and the the infrastructure is all Java based. Um, Scala is a functional version. It's kind of like the F sharp of um, of Java, if you will. So it's a little bit clunky as far as its syntax compared to, you know, the uh, the sort of minimalist wabi-sabi of, um, of Python there. But um, they've made a lot of uh, improvements in the Python PySpark ecosystem to be able to get native wrappers around um, what used to be called koalas, but now this Python library Panda is essentially a native koalas uh, binary infrastructure. That's kind of a nice uh, introduction there. So, uh, so anyway, so that's that's kind of Spark in a nutshell. But you know, what's um, you know, so we're kind of leaving the the um, the sort of core open source work, right? The people that that were brilliant at Berkeley happened to uh, raise you know over ten million dollars in their first round, which was more than my startup in the Spark ecosystem, you know, was able to raise in in our six years uh, that I was involved with them. Um, I'm not bitter or anything, but um, they ended up 
making a company called Databricks. And so a lot of times they've done a very good job of making Databricks and Spark synonymous. But, you know, Mar um, Microsoft is now ultimately looking at trying to build um, an infrastructure of its own um, using Spark that becomes, you know, kind of its own way of uh, branding things. So, you know, so Spark itself is something that you can go to sparkapache.com or .org and be able to just spin up by yourself. You can even get all the fancy stuff um, with a little bit more uh, elbow grease and Python to be able to work with. But um, we're, you know, time is also money in the business standpoint. And so there are reasons to be able to invest in, in good vendors. And, you know, Databricks and Microsoft have um, di different interpretations and positionings of themselves that um, we'll be talking about as well uh, a little bit there. So, you know, when we look at um, what Azure Synapse is, at the end of the day, um, it's really easier to think about it as a platform that has at its core a lot of Spark availability. And it, it, it touches a lot of other uh, Microsoft Azure technologies in order to be able to integrate it into a much uh, more robust ecosystem. Um, you know, Databricks, you know, has done a tremendous job in being able to take, uh, you know, machine learning, data engineering, and the things of the sort of pre-Spark world and make it very easy and very compelling stories uh, for mach machine learning and data engineering. But, um, you know, they, they are, you know, basically, you know, at, at, at the core, they built everything around um, their own version of Spark. And so they don't, they're, they've been, they have one acquisition that we've done, we'll, we'll see very briefly uh, in our demo, but uh, Microsoft has a, a lot larger ecosystem that we're looking at here. So, um, you know, when you see this ADLS generation two, that is basically Microsoft's branding of an equivalent of HDFS. Um, when we get to uh, Azure Databricks um, or, you know, or AWS Databricks or GCP's Databricks, um, you'll see a DBFS, which is essentially a Databricks HDFS. So again, you know, it's, it, it's got, it's got similar um, metaphors as far as how you can interact with it. Um, but um, we'll get a little bit of a taste of what that looks like later. But uh, the main thing to understand is that, you know, it, at its, at its core, um, there's a lot going on in Azure Synapse. Um, there's also, um, right now, there's kind of a little bit of a, of a tussle going on where uh, Snowflake is trying to build Spark to be able to get the Python users and the PySpark users away from, uh, from, from Databricks. And Databricks is also trying to up their game as a data warehouse um, engine, which is, um, you know, putting them at loggerheads with them. But, you know, in a lot of ways, Microsoft made the, um, the investment very early and found ultimately a good home for some things we'll talk about a little bit more later. But this just gives you an idea of sort of the, the ecosystem. It's going to be, you know, hard to be able to dig in too much um, into the product here, but I have a couple, uh, you know, high points that I'll be showing you along the way. And, you know, when we look at, uh, the um, the infrastructure for um, for common data engineering applications. This is a a, a, a scenario uh, that's that uh, that is pretty typical. Uh, I would argue that you can look at Synapse. Uh, you know, if if you're looking at Synapse uh, as far as the Spark pool, you could have uh, something directly. Let me just add a little bit of a pointer here. You could add Synapse here. And be able to put it in and read directly from uh, here as well. If you need to see the live stream, because you know a sort of Lambda framework, if you've heard that term, would be a combination of reading from disk and reading from streams to be able to build the reporting areas. And um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be doing anything on ML uh, in this particular scenario, but this gives you an idea of um, a very common type of um, of of overall solution to be able to look at. So the nice thing about Azure Synapse Analytics is it's basically environment for doing Python work and SQL. Uh, you can actually do .NET coding against it as well, 
Um, but you know, I haven't. I, I, I was in .NET 1.0 when it first came out when I was working at Microsoft, but I spent five years in the uh, in the open source system, so I, I've become a Python convert, and I haven't gone back to, to .NET. So uh, my tech leads will have to forgive me from Microsoft there. So um, anyway, so that gives you kind of a a, a, a real quick uh, tour of some of the major features that are different. So it, it's easy, you know, I, I would argue that when you look at Azure Synapse, you're really looking at a big data 3.0 uh, platform uh, in that respect, where 2.0 would be kind of Spark and, you know, uh, uh, Databricks is trying to kind of move in that direction as well. So okay, quick, uh, before quick question, thought, Drew. Um, mm -hmm. ha have you been speaking English this whole time? <laughs> Um, well, uh, I, I, I caught Azure and Python and Microsoft in there <laughs> interspersed. The rest of it, I recognize the accent, but <laughs> I think I may well, need to go you know, to Divergence Academy. Is there a crayon <laughs> level? Is there more of a Prevergence Academy, I, the Kindervergence I, I, Academy I, I, that I can join? I, I, I think that, you know, I have some I have some samples of, of, of code i'm not I, that i can i can give you a voiceover so you don't have to translate on what they're saying that i think will help make this a little bit easier there but again that's the, the, the but you know it, it's kind of hard to this is a lot to fit into a, a setup um in general but um you know anyway but uh yeah i think my daughter once said that uh, there are times that i open my mouth and she feels like bees come out so uh, <laughs> i did not simplify things enough there but uh, <laughs> yeah, for those of you concerned, we'll be rebroadcasting this later in English. <laughs> <laughs> With subtitles. <laughs> With subtitles. Yeah, using the Comic well, Sans know, like font. I said, I, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you know, I, I think this was all set up, so at least you had some, I think a lot of things will make a little bit more sense as we go through the demo here. So I think that, that that it's appropriate at this point for me to uh, to switch gears. But if there's certainly any, oops, sorry, if there's any questions about um, uh, what we've went over, um, you know, th there's a th you know when when you look at you know I, you know I, I've been in in the data in in doing writing databases has been sort of a computer professional for almost I hate to say it, 30 years at this point and you know big data is kind of the biggest paradigm shift um, besides the web that's ever happened in that respect and you know it's you know it th there's a lot to the layers of it there so um, you know I probably could have spent an hour just talking about Hadoop but then we wouldn't have anything fun to look at so anyway um, with that I'm going to give a while I'm starting up this um, cluster, I'm going to give a brief introduction to what a day in the life or what 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 Databricks is as an architecture, right? So um, at the end of the day, um, there is a uh, because Databricks and Spark are designed to be able to use storage that is independent from the um, the actual compute infrastructure, um, and they basically charge by the hour for access to their environments. Um, this is this is an environment where I'm basically setting up a um, I'm starting up a cluster so we can run a notebook, right? Um, similar to what you would run into in Jupyter or Jupyter Hubs for um, a sort of shared workspace. Um, this is an example of a series of uh, notebooks that um, are part of the, um, th that have some samples from the Data, Databricks Academy um, to be able to show some uh, examples of, um, of, uh, of technology that, um, that, that you can use in Databricks. And again, Databricks by itself, just if you look here, really sees itself in sort of three different modes, right? They, uh, they, were, they acquired a company very recently where they've essentially got a Spark-based equivalent of um, of SQL um, here, uh, it requires like eight cluster nodes to be able to start up, so it's it's pretty expensive to be able to run. What essentially allows you to do is have real time um, 
the equivalent of something that would be independent of Power BI to be able to build direct SQL queries against any big data infrastructure, right? So you can think of this as this this SQL product itself, it, you know, you, you can argue kind of competes with Tableau or, um, uh, or Power BI as being able to give you a layer of compute, but it's, it's uh, and, and visualizations, presentation, things of that nature. Um, there's also an infrastructure for machine learning. Um, one of the things that, um, Data, that Databricks as a company has done that's been a great service to the entire industry that didn't necessarily directly uh, benefit them was um, looking at two technologies that they open sourced to be able to help, um, you know, help uh, solve different problems. One that I'm not going to be showing very much is this thing called MLflow, which was really the first mainstream API to have a uh, an analytic engine independent infrastructure. So you could run, you could manage experiments in machine learning that were happening at AWS or locally in Python or at uh, Azure and be able to kind of keep track of them all in one location. So um, that's that's a kind of a that's that's sort of one of the markets that um, that Databricks is uh, involved with. But um, the one that we're going to be talking about today is primarily looking at um, what's been a um, an innovation in the data space uh, called uh, the Delta Lake format. And um, you know, just to kind of take things back, most people think about databases storing things like how you'd seen a spreadsheet of there being rows and columns, and and each literal page that's physically written is going to have a series of rows as a row store itself. And uh, I think starting, yeah, starting in SQL 2012 in Microsoft, they started to introduce the concept of a column store. Uh, this is also what's at the um, uh, behind big table in, um, in Google. And there's now an open source version called uh, Parquet, P-A-R-Q-E-T, like the the, the tile, the, the wooden floors, if you will, that um, that was the darling of, um, of of analytic work because it was an open source way that you could just query directly in SQL. Um, but um, Delta Lake basically was was created by by Databricks and open source because they had a common engineering problem where people were trying to write to this one parquet file and have multiple readers. Right when you're trying to centralize everything to big data. You essentially have a problem where if you have too many writes to the same file, you'd have you'd have problems, uh, you know, being able to manage that uh, that concurrency. Um, and so, essentially, the Delta Lake format that we're going to go through a brief demo of here is an introduction to that type of um, that. Basically, it's an extension. Uh, it, it's it's Parquet under the covers, but it adds another layer for transaction logs uh, or the Butter. equivalent that um, I think you're show you some, ex uh, some examples. I'm sorry, what was the question? All right, so I think our cluster, yeah, okay, our cluster's up right now. Um, but just to give you an idea before we, you know, since since, since we're, you know, th this particular cluster is, um, is, uh, is the simplest um, one that we have. It's not that big compared to how big they can get. Um, but you know, if you look at um, just some very basic things here, uh, you know, high concurrency would be for when you're you're running jobs for when you're doing. You know, uh, research work and you uh, appealing in databricks is that they have great algorithms for knowing when to spin up the number of workers to be able to make sure jobs finish very well, right? So, um, you know, and there's a lot of cool stuff I could go into just on talking about clusters, but just wanted to give you that sort of basic understanding of this layer between the storage and what we're looking at here. I always thought the worker algorithm was based on the available balance on my credit card. <laughs> At least that's how it seems to work in Azure. Well, yeah, that that, that that's where the max workers come comes in, right? And and, and and also that that's why anytime I do it, I choose single node because it you know 
generally speaking, you know, 14 gigs, um, you know, and, uh, and, 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 uh, and four cores, I mean, that's not a bad system, at least for dev, right? I mean, when it comes to production work, that's when it starts to get expensive. So, um, anyway, but, um, all right. So, so let's actually start looking at a, at a notebook here. And I'm not going to go through a lot of the nitty gritty of this here, but um, if uh, have you guys talked about Python or I mean sort of Jupyter notebooks or notebooks in general previously in um, in your talks? Sorry, I was on mute. No, no, we have not. Okay, all right. Well, I'll explain that basically because there's a, there's a con, you know even though this says Python at the top the way that notebooks work, whether the, the, you know, Zeppelin was the original big kind of big data notebook architecture, and then uh, Jupyter kind of leapfrogged over it uh, later. Uh, and Databricks was early enough to market that essentially their proprietary notebook system, it imports Jupyter, but essentially its code base is based on uh, Zeppelin. So this, this percentage run is essentially the equivalent of having a command line shell into the worker node, or, or the, I'm sorry, the, the the driver node, or the the, the main, um, the, like the, the the where you know the where, what the the primary node that you're connecting to in cluster, in, in the cluster before you know big jobs get distributed out because you still got to connect to one location. There. And so this is essentially uh, what's cool about this is that this is actually telling it that it can go here and run this this notebook. So you can essentially tell it to run a notebook from using this magic commander. So you can kind of enter the, in, in Jupyter notebooks, you can interleave between command line shells and, and, and Python, SQL, Scala, what have you. Um, in, um, you know, in, and are you, are you limited in those notebooks to specific types of operations in order? Like you have to do writes followed by reads or, or can you just sort of mix and match all those commands and it auto optimizes? Oh, well, I mean, auto optimization is it, it, optimization is done in the um, the query processor of the um, the Spark engine, what creates what they call the DAG or the d directed acyclical graph, the equivalent of like the execution plan in SQL terms. Um, so that optimization is kind of built that, that that that's a set, you know, you can you can tweak it and hack it the same way you can, you know, add hints. And things like that but but basically this is this is a, you can think of this equivalent this percentage run and this notebook system as the equivalent of batch scripts that can each run individual queries okay okay well, i just real quick want to welcome jason uh our fellow host and the only one who probably understands any of what drew is talking about <laughs> <laughs> out, out, of, out of our group uh, well, well, thank you, Jason, for joining us and adding some intelligence to this conversation. <laughs> uh, I, I, did, I did bring Nate with me. So like Nate, my cat is sitting here in the chair. Uh, I just got out of a, a, a meeting at, at work where he decided to lock the computer because he was done. So <laughs> he stepped on a key and I, locked the machine. And he's I, like, I think done. I think Paul locked up after Drew's intro. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, you know, just watching it, the bouncing you know. cursor. <laughs> well, you know, it, it'll it'll start when we when we get to SQL queries, it'll start to make more sense. You'll be like, oh, okay, I I, I think I can follow you there. So anyway, um, briefly, and you know, uh, actually looking at the time, I don't even know. If, well, I'll, I'll try to go through this real quickly here. Um, let me just do a run all on this, and then I'll I'll just um, I'll just talk about. Um, Uh, while it's running, we'll talk about it here. So, so basically, this this data set has these um, these five columns in it here, and um, this this mounted tr this 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 mount that's equivalent to you know an MNT in Linux or, or Unix is essentially a, a shared file that's being connected to our cluster um, in this particular case, but, you know, it might be a DBFS, HDFS, ADLS, what have you, or, um, a, um, uh, any Azure block storage as well. Um, so all that's happening in this 
place here is that one thing that's really cool as a general concept in Spark is that schemas can exist independent of a file themselves, right? So, you know, it's kind of similar to in SQL Server how there's a type that you can build that it that exists independently of an actual table so you can use it in mm. um, you know sort of something like that. But what's cool is that it it's essentially it can, you know, the the beauty of um, of big data schemas is that they're designed around adjacent formats. They 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 support array and object structures for essentially what we kind of look at in canonical pre-big data terms of nested files in that respect. Um, so you can see that this is Spark here uh, because you know you know behind the scenes. Python itself has a different memory um, system than the Spark memory, so everything's kind of bouncing back and forth. Um, and but what I want to point out is that you know once you make a connection to Spark, you're getting an RDD like I talked about. And here we're reading from a stream that the data is coming in from, but that could be from a file instead of a stream. So like I said, the line between streaming and files is very very light in um, in in uh, in DataBricks terms. And so, um, so this is basically just setting up the parquet file and the checkpoint. But together, that basically, you can look at that, that the subset of what the delta format is, is this parquet uh, columnar uh, format here. And the checkpoint is where it keeps track of actual writes that are happening. And then this is just naming a stream that we'll be using to be able to write uh, connections that are coming in, right? And so um, this is, uh, it, it, since I ran everything at once, this stopped the actual streaming, but you can see the, the, the batch records that we're running through. You could kind of insert Kafka, Stream Analytics, Flink, whatever you wanted as a way to be able to bring data into, um, you know, what's being written to, to, uh, to a table in this particular case or a file, however you look at it. So, um, you know, as you can imagine, when you're when you're writing to a file and you want to keep track of the exact granularity of what's happening in that file um, as a separate uh, checkpoint scenario, um, you know you can have bloat in that checkpoint file. And so this is essentially you can see an alter table, right? That's that's a SQL command, right? I'm, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be too. Now, uh, now we're talking language. Now I can see. I, I told you it'd start to make sense at some point, right? I, I understood that reference. I know, I know, I know. It's it, it 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 you know. But like I said, basically everything that you used to think about about below the SQL command is is the gobbledygook that's that's new, right? Um, so the idea is basically this this says okay look i'm going to keep i'm going to basically be querying the transaction log instead of writing it to the parquet file for 10 days right you can actually do a vacuum later as a way to be able to bring that in but we're not going to do a vacuum later at this point so and so this this just shows you some of the details of what comes back um you know as far as um showing the properties of the particular table that we're looking at and so now we have a select. So this is, you know, because we're using Python as a wrapper around Spark SQL, right? You can see that we're passing in as a variable um, the name of the table, but we're doing a count star from the right here. That's select count star, right? We're we're back into SQLville. So th this is this is where we start to add new things that are sexy that you don't have in your other dialects of of SQL. Right? This is sort of the data breaks spark sql exclusive that ultimately i predict transact sql will will support right so uh, this describe history is um you know because describe is the equivalent of like looking at the information schema we don't it's kind of an optional aspect to have the equivalent of the information schemas of tables and columns in um in big data, because if you write a file that's got 5,000 columns, sometimes you only need 500, and that's the table you're looking at, right? So it's a little bit more loosey-goosey, but this is basically showing all the actual um, timestamps of when things actually hit writes on the um, on the file that we're looking at here, as an example. And then um, if we do, if basically, 
here, what we're doing is we're, we're looking at, we're getting that result programmatically, and then we're taking the, um, what would be, we're taking the first two and going to the second to last one with this negative one here to basically create the first timestamp, right? And so that's what, so then what we're doing at this point is we're saying, okay, even though if I do a select star here, I'm gonna get 96, like we saw earlier up here. If I had the timestamp as of at that point, it'll tell me what my count was at that particular time, right? So I didn't have to do, you know, we, we, we specified the schema once at the beginning, right? We didn't do any mumbo jumbo with change data capture or audit logs or, you know, anything that, that would take this offline to be able to interrogate what's happening in the database, but it gives us that analytic window because we have the, the essentially the, you could look at the, the Delta Lake itself has a transaction log that is implicitly queryable. So that's pretty sexy stuff in my opinion. As a data engineer, there's a lot of hoops you got to jump through a lot of times to get that kind of uh, detail there. So anyway, so that 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 I thought was a good kind of introduction to help you understand um, some of the core work of what Delta Lake is, but just to kind of help you understand some of the other things from a, um, a database standpoint here. So anyway, I know that was a, a quick bus tour and we don't have too much more time. Um, but what I want to do is just briefly talk about, so, so this is something we kind of get in, um, let me move to, to, to Synapse because I know we're, we're, we're running out of time here. So as an example here, uh, you know, in, um, if you look at what is in um, Synapse, right? We'll, we'll, we'll forget about the, 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 all the lovely cool things about having the equivalent of, you know, integration services or its new format, Azure Data Factory, as, you know, something that may look familiar to how control flows and data flows look like in the ancient past. Um, but, you know, from a, from a SQL pool standpoint, right, the, the, because, um, because Spark has a Spark SQL uh, native environment, basically what's happened is that Synapse allows you to take Transact SQL as an engine and that, that dialect of SQL and be able to use it against Spark Java. So you can interleave doing Python and SQL work in Azure the same way that you would in, um, you know, in, in Databricks. So there's, there's two worlds that the, um, you know, that, that, that exist as far as how you can, how you can build these SQL pools, right? The, the, the one that's the closest cognate to how Databricks work is what we consider serverless, which means basically it spins up nodes as needed to be able to have you run the jobs. And then it, it has magic to be able to decide, you know, how well they'll run. But the one that's kind of near and dear to my heart, having spent a lot of time in data warehousing and also, you know, having spent time at a, um, at a startup that was based uh, with the same investors that, um, that sold, uh, albeit potentially prematurely from Microsoft's opinion, um, the engine that we was one point known parallel as parallel data warehouse, and then the SQL DW product. And that was essentially what they called the dedicated SQL pool. That's why I named it DAT Allegro lives here is that this has some special extensions that I have optimized the SQL engine for scale out um, to be able to handle uh, typical data warehousing work, things that are kind of being hacked um, back into um, Databricks and, and Spark in general that um, Snowflake already has, right? So just to give a quick example of that part, since I want to leave a couple minutes for questions at the end here, I'll just point out that um, that in order that that you see this syntax here about how the distribution is handled, which is essentially a way of being able to decide, okay, if I've got 50 nodes <clears throat> that are um, that I'm scaling a table out to, how do I handle putting those into, you know, different locations as far as, you know, you know which node does that data reside on, right? Um, another advantage that uh, the dedicated SQL pools have that you don't have in, in, um, in, in any other Spark engine is being able to say, okay, look, this is a dimension table, so I want it essentially copied to all my locations, so that way I don't have to do any crosstalk 
to be able to get significantly faster work. So essentially you get sort of the, the best of both worlds of having the, the Spark, uh, you know, on-demand work and also have some very deep kind of data warehousing uh, infrastructure that's, um, that's worthwhile here. So, um, yeah, all right. So anyway, um, I mean, I, just to give an example of, um, I mean, I'm not going to run this because I want to leave a, a, a couple examples, but you can see that, you know, we, this is an example of um, a Python that, that you can run against one of these, um, the Spark poles here. And if we look at um, an example of how, how SQL on read or how schemas on, on read works, right? This is an example of basically just being able to create um, an open row set, right? That's, that's a syntax that's been around since SQL 7, but being able to hit it directly with a format to be able to read from uh, big data, you know, kind of the evolution of um, the, uh, the polybase uh, architecture there. Um, so with that, um, I want to leave, you know, I see we've only got five minutes left. So um, I certainly could go on, but I want to see if there's any other questions or any other highlights uh, as far as I got one slide left that we didn't really cover. So let me just um, start there just as far as to, you know, um, to, to look at kind of the summary aspect, right? I've tried to make the case that um, Spark and Big Data not only solve the problem of data movement, but they also make it much easier uh, to manage being able to have the types of AI uh, workflows and um, you know uh, other types of advanced analytics that you need to be able to quickly. Uh, Databricks has done a tremendous job of, of gathering the mind share of Spark, but um, you know they've uh, they they they've recently contracted Bill Inman for those of you who you know he's sort of the godfather of data warehouses to uh, to help steal mind share from Snowflake. So they're right now uh, those two companies are uh, loggerhead at this point, but. In a lot of ways, while those two duke it out, Azure made the investment in DAT Allegro already to be able to take it, uh, good advantage of those places. And they also have a lot uh, richer uh, ecosystem uh, for integration parts of that. So, um, you know, I, I know that this is a lot of very data intense jargon that we've pulled out. And, you know, I've tried to unpack this as much as possible. Um, but by the same token, you know, uh, there's some things that just can't be simplified uh, much more or something. So. Yeah, I'm sorry you didn't have time to go into anything complicated. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I I tried I tried to I, I tried to I didn't even get to the complex stuff on this simple stuff. So yeah, you know, but started yeah, with uh, uncomprehensible and ended with time travel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, if you know if you're gonna clean segue, you know, go, go 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 big or go home, right? Yeah, the so. only thing I didn't understand was everything that came out of your mouth. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so to well, be fair, I, I, Drew, that's not unusual. That's not unusual. Talking Paul, 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 everyone, Paul just sort of smiles and nods, which is what I've been doing. I'm the looks of this really operation. Really well, so, yeah. well so. I mean, you know, look, I, 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 you know, data itself is is not the sexiest, um, you know, from a business perspective, world. But at the end of the day. You know, it's um, you know, it's uh, it's something that 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 needs some unpacking. But sometimes people, uh, I guess that's why they pay you the big bucks to uh, not have to unpack it in front of the board. So there's that. So as as someone who has a SQL background, and I don't do the data stuff like Jason does all the time, and, mm -hmm. and even Power BI is sort of stretching my my comprehension of report building. But um, mm -hmm. I, I am used to working with really large uh, data sets in a relational database and trying to massage mm -hmm. that into something useful. How how do I with a with a basic background in in uh, databases take this next step? and and start to learn how I can enhance those solutions with the type of things you're talking about. Where, where do I go to, to begin? Well, you know, um, Microsoft has done a really good job of building examples, you know, similar to Transact SQL of where you can at least get the basics, right? At the end of the day, um, when you think about, you know, you still get the beauty of Transact SQL for the most part, as far as, you know, if you go to books online for SQL Server, you'll see that, you know, almost all of the syntaxes 
that are the same for your developer edition of Transact SQL are the same for a SQL dedicated pool. What's different is the storage underneath it and whether you need the Python angle, right? Because, you know, I, I would argue that it was data science that created the need for big data because they wanted to be able to do very complex analysis that required big feature engineering. And it got to be too expensive to try to make copies of that data other places. So for core SQL, you know, it, you know, it, it's, it just becomes... Um, you, you have the exact same tool set that you had previously. What's changed is how you can scale everything underneath it in that respect. So there is kind of, you know, a, I, I mean, I wouldn't call SQL a, a, a kitty pool compared to Python, but from a data science perspective, right, complexity-wise, SQL is is much tra more tractable than, you know, trying to do unstructured, you know, um, deep learning, so. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this particular episode. Uh, there was a lot uh, there. I hope you all got something out of it. I learned uh, a few things. I'm going to have to watch it three or four times to, I think, learn the rest. Uh, On slow speed. <laughs> <laughs> and and look up stuff like crazy. So, yeah, I'm going to burn a hole in Wikipedia later tonight, I think. Uh, but, Drew, we can't thank you enough for doing this uh, with us and helping us. Uh, we, we spent our first uh, nine episodes episode staying away from Jason's core topic. We finally got to a topic that that uh, is in Jason's um, uh, side of the field. And unfortunately, I had to miss half of it. But um, in any event, we will be revisiting the data and big data question in future episodes. Want to thank our, our sponsors, of course. Want to give a shout out to the Bifocal podcast, uh, where they talk more about things like this. Uh, it may be in, in language that Paul even understands. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and of course, Paul mentioned it, his user group, uh, the Taren Dallas for Salesforce uh, developer um, user group, uh, which met uh, yesterday, I believe. But it, is, is, is it the third or fourth Wednesday, fourth Wednesday of every fourth month? Fourth Wednesday What's of every schedule? month. Yes. All right. Uh, so with that, we'll wrap it all up. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for this episode. And we will see you next month uh, again right here on YouTube and Facebook. Bye, everyone. Bye.